Welcome to My Talk, the podcast series brought to you by ISS Market Intelligence. If you're interested in what is happening in the global retail financial services marketplace, be it asset, wealth management, insurance, banking, fintech, you name it, you have come to the right place. Count on my talk each month to keep you up to date with industry developments, but also to help you peek under the hood of these headlines with the help of industry experts. If you enjoy this episode of my talk, subscribe to my talk podcast on your preferred podcast platform for monthly episodes featuring talks with thought leaders in the world of financial services, asset and wealth management. My name is Goshka Folda. I'm your host and global head of research at ISS Market Intelligence. Today, we will explore developments in the U.S. financial advisor universe as um, outlined in the recently released ISS Market Intelligence State of the Market Intermediary Distribution Report. Um, uh, clearly, distribution is always top of mind for asset um, and wealth management uh, executives. Um, to, so to help us explore this topic, I am pleased to be joined today by a repeat guest on this podcast, um, my colleague, Christopher Davis, head of U.S. Fund Research. Welcome, Christopher. I'm, I'm happy to be back. Thank you for being here, Christopher. So let us uh, start maybe with the broadest um, ideas. The report is uh, is really interesting and leverages a range of data that uh, we at ISS Market Intelligence um, intercept, gather, curate, uh, and analyze. Um, and clearly, advisors are the asset management uh, industry's most potent and powerful connection to their ultimate target audience, which is the, the the retail investor. That has been actually the case for the past three to four decades, and I'm dating myself here. Um, but even though it, it seemed for many, many years, it seemed like kind of uh, watching paint dry, looking at the advisory universe, um, in the report, you describe and uh, document uh, some powerful changes that are now um, underway in the advisory universe in the U.S. Um, some of those are really, really interesting. Can you talk to us uh, a little bit about those big shifts? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think what's changed the most is the advisor's job description. If, if you just look over the past few decades, it's gone mainly from facilitating transactions to providing holistic financial planning. And, and so when you meet with a financial advisor, you used to almost be meeting with a salesperson if you were one of the clients. Now you're meeting uh, more likely uh, with a financial life coach uh, instead. And if you think about how a salesperson is paid, you make money through commissions. And really until the 2010s, that's how most advisors made money and it was fund managers paying those commissions, and that created that direct link between the advisor and manager. Now, our data tells us that less than 10% of all advisor sales are through commission-based share classes or those through with distribution fees. And so now the advice business is primarily fee-based. And this really has changed the game for asset managers. Uh, instead of enabling advisors to sell funds, fund managers best serve advisors by helping them manage the relationships with their clients. Uh, and I mentioned that, you know, the way advisors uh, are being paid has changed. And the whole fee-based model has just changed the economics of the advice business. 
And, you know, AUM base fees, as our uh, as, as asset managers know very well, um, are really attractive. Uh, from an economic standpoint, you have much steadier revenues than uh, through a transaction-based model. And, you know, a lot of advisors have realized, uh, see, this is a really attractive model. It makes a lot of money. It creates a lot of steady revenues. And they want a bigger, you know, slice of the pie. And uh, they've done so through becoming more independent. And one of the downsides of independence is that you don't have the same kind of support functions like compliance and HR and finance and so on that you would have if you were, say, a Merrill Lynch uh, or UBS advisor. Uh, and if you're really entrepreneurial, oh, as many advisors are, you know these kinds of functions are sort of a drag. Uh, you would rather be meeting with clients instead. And so that's why we're seeing smaller RIAs being swallowed up uh, by RIA aggregators, which can provide some of these non-client-facing functions, which... You know, let's face it, lots of advisors, that's not their best talents and that's not what they want to be doing. Um, and, you know, this whole recurring revenue story is one of the big reasons why you're seeing private equity managers scooping up wealth managers. Uh, and, you know, lastly, one shift we focus on as well is how a lot of traditional wirehouse brokers uh, are, are opting for more independent structures. Um, uh, you know, sometimes wirehouse uh, advisors end up becoming employers of a independent broker dealer or they're affiliated with one so that they could, you know, either earn a regular paycheck. Uh, you know, not everybody wants to be a business person uh, dependent on, um, you know, bringing in new clients uh, and new assets um, or at least as a way to transition their business to a, a fee-based model. That makes perfect sense, Christopher. Um, and I guess one uh, interesting aspect of it is, of course, this has been accompanied by the change of heart at some of the largest warehouses were clearly uh, kind of the hurdle to to get to become a successful advisor within that system has been pushed up in terms of the demand on production um, and kind of uh, uh, grid payouts. Uh, we've uh, we've seen a lot of warehouses really trying to push uh, their advisors up the curve. So really, that shift to independence opens almost um, you know just a diverse. Um, avenues for advisors and financial financial planners and advisors to really um, uh, kind of uh, uh, demonstrate uh, validity of their practices in different contexts. But let's now shift from the shape of the advisor um, universe um, to advisor preferences. Um, you document some some interesting emerging trends in advisor product preferences. Of course, these are based by um, supported by um, our uh, expansive uh, advisor survey activity through our market metrics survey process. Um, one one trend that seemed very interesting uh, was um, that perhaps active managers hopes for um, success in the ETF world uh, are finally being realized. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, uh, we ask advisors uh, every single year, which investment vehicle, you know, do you see as the future of your business? And, and by investment vehicle, we mean mutual fund ETF, SMA, and so on. Uh, last year, when we asked this question, 27% of advisors said the mutual fund is the future of their businesses. When we asked the same question this year, just 20% uh, 
said so. So that's quite a dramatic decline over a one-year period. And, you know, this doesn't necessarily imply that advisors are giving up on mutual funds. It just means that fewer advisors see the mutual fund at the center of their businesses. In fact, a relatively equal number of advisors, uh, you know, said they preferred mutual funds as the ETFs, as the SMAs. So, you know, it really kind of shows us a world in which asset managers need to be able to deploy their capabilities across all kinds of vehicle types. And, and you know, in terms of active ETFs, I wouldn't be surprised that if we look back to 2022, we'll think of it as kind of a hinge year for for ETF adoption. Um, one of the biggest reasons why is uh, Capital Group launched a, a suite of active ETFs this year. Uh, they did so very cautiously. They announced that they were doing this a year ago. Um, they moved very deliberately into this space. And, and so far, uh, they've raised about $2 billion. Uh, and that's not too shabby for uh, a newly launched fund. You know, they've had success in getting these funds in model portfolios uh, at SEI, for example. And what that says to me is that these products can pass gatekeeper muster right off the bat. And, you know, the typical conventional wisdom is that you have to wait three years at least when from the day that a new product is launched to even get on a, a gatekeeper's radar. You know, so maybe that's saying that new products don't necessarily need to wait three years before getting a stamp of approval, you know, when you have a very, you know, experienced, well-established brand name, well-known managers, strong, you know, very strong long-term record. The second way I would point out what's really notable is that Capital launched these ETFs with a transparent structure, meaning their holdings are published daily. And it wasn't that long ago that active managers were thought that they would have to shield their holdings from public view. Uh, and, and so if one of the world's largest fund managers can embrace transparency, you know, so must everyone else or, you know, everyone else uh, should at least be able to think about doing so. And uh, previously, advisors uh, and other fund buyers uh, were, you know, very hesitant to move into a more semi-transparent structure in which holdings are not disclosed on a regular basis. That's really ha- That really has held back the development of active ETF strategies. Now, I suppose it's okay, uh, you know, that active managers are operating in the transparent structure. And, you know, if you think about Americans, uh, Capital Group's advisor-heavy audience, uh, the early success of ETFs is a decent barometer of advisor interest in active ETFs. And you could say the same thing about uh, DFA. They've had also uh, quite a bit of early success in launching active etFs. They have a very advisor focus they're a very advisor focused operation. They have quite a deep uh, quite deep relationships in the advisor community. And so those two things are really strong signals to me that, um, at least when there are strong relationships, you know, and well understood investment strategies, advisors are willing to to take the leap in, into active ETFs. Yeah, that's really interesting. And maybe Christopher, it points to that kind of long hinted at, but maybe only now coming uh, surfacing in a powerful way. Uh, greater product neutrality or maybe product packaging neutrality. So investment strategy is what um, 
active managers bring to the table and hopefully it's unique and it delivers and uh, on on the on its mandate but exactly how advisors ultimately consume it or how advisors and investors consume it is not as important as just going back to this idea of uh, investment strategy. And I think these, these, um, the, the emergence uh, of active uh, ETFs uh, um, from um, Capital Group and uh, from DFA, I think is suggestive of that. Um, so those are pretty dramatic developments. Granted, uh, they are happening at a, a rather uh, uh, big time in the markets. Uh, clearly, uh, uh, some behavioral swings are uh, are obviously happening while the markets are are tumultuous. But um, beyond the product shifts, uh, what I thought was really interesting in the report is um, uh, your comments about model portfolios. Um, is that now becoming a viable way through which asset managers can engage and intensify or deepen their relationships with their advice intermediaries? Well, uh, that's the hope, at least. Uh, The idea is that by offering a free asset allocation blueprint, active managers could steer dollars into fee-earning funds. And if you look at what's happened since about 2017, uh, the number of model portfolios has exploded, mainly thanks to the fact that asset managers have been launching models of their own. In fact, uh, almost half the model portfolios out there uh, started in 2017 or later. Now, we, we asked advisors what they thought about model portfolios in our most recent survey, and, and the interest um was pretty modest among advisors and manager-provided models. Uh, you know, about 15% of respondents uh, said they use manager-provided models. That's about the same as it was uh, three years ago. Uh, advisors are more likely to prefer in-house models uh, or third-party models. But what I point out is that about half of all advisors say they don't use models at all, that they build their own. And, you know, uh, the number of models that are advisors that are building their own uh, models has decreased quite a bit uh, over the past few years. Um, And, you know, for the reasons that we were talking about earlier, that advisors want to spend more time with clients, uh, spending less time managing the, you know, day-to-day intricacies of a portfolio, you know, we See that we think that model portfolio adoption will will continue to proceed apace, and you know, so if that's the case, and you know, even if manager provided models, even if they don't gain much market share, uh, it's not going to be the the end of the world because they'll be getting kind of the same slice uh, of a fast growing pie. So although adoption maybe isn't what some managers might have hoped for, I, I still think that the prospects are are, are pretty bright there. Now, uh, it is a different type of competitive landscape for managers. You know, if you think about if you're marketing single funds, really managers are competing against just each other. In the model portfolio universe, the opportunity set is a lot broader. Um, Managers are competing against home offices, third-party model providers. Uh, If you look at the list of top model providers, InvestNet is in the top five, you know, and they are increasingly a home to independent advisors primarily and helping them manage their businesses. And if you looked at this list five years ago, InvestNet was not even on on the map. This is such an interesting trend, um, uh, even though I recognize it is still somewhat incipient, but it is 
um, interesting that around the world we're beginning to see the rise of the usage um, of model portfolio uh, portfolios by advisors, be it a single asset manager or, as you pointed out, kind of TAMP or multi-manager platforms. Um, this is in line with the shift and the focus uh, of the advisor job description, as you pointed out at the top of uh, the podcast, um, away from kind of fund picking and investment strategy towards a greater involvement in financial planning and providing holistic services. And the, and you're right. I think that, that the road between the asset manager and, and the advisor, um, can, can uh, be traversed through the model portfolio, but it's not as, as, as obvious and uh, as easy. And I think it'll take some time for, for advisors to really see the value. The interesting part about that, and we just talked about it in the uh, UK context on our last podcast, and we'll talk about it on our next podcast, which will um, investigate wholesaling trends in the US intermediate advice space, um, is the fact that um, all these changes in the advisor universe and the product preferences and kind of whether to go model or not to model will have a profound impact on uh, on distribution strategies by asset ma- managers going forward. Would you agree? What do you think could be some of the impacts? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think managers in a lot of ways are going to have some of the same kind of challenges in the model universe as they've had in marketing single funds. Uh, in fact, ETFs may be an even greater threat in the model context because they work so well in models. They're easy to slot in port, uh, portfolios. If you have a large growth slot of your model portfolio, pretty easy to find a, an ETF that'll work there. Uh, they're very flexible. Um, you know, the tax management benefits are there and, and, and so on. Uh, Vanguard and BlackRock are one of the handful of managers with lots of model assets for good reason. So I, I do think you can, you're going to see some very um, similar challenges, uh, but some new ones in the sense that, uh, you know, managers will need to think very holistically about the kind of capabilities that they bring to the table. Um, to, to be a successful model operator, you have to be good at everything or at least a lot of things. You know, no one today will buy a whole record for a couple of good songs. And, you know, people today want model portfolios that are just filled with all of the hits. Uh, they don't just want, you know, a, a, an asset manager's full lineup unless, you know, each of them adds some significant value to clients. So I think in that context, it um, it kind of ups the game for what asset managers have to be able to deliver. Uh, on the other hand, if you're one of the managers out there with very specialized capabilities, the, the good news here is that advisors, and we saw this in our survey again and again, it, they tell us that they value customization highly. Um, if you look at the number of advisors that you know take models as they are and don't make any changes to them, it's a really small number. I mean, customization is really key. And you know, that's why we see managers offering models with more open architecture and that just is another space, another opening for specialists uh, to, to penetrate uh, the model uh, universe. So, I, you know, I, I think it's kind of a mixed bag. It, it, there are opportunities for asset managers. It's a new way to deploy your capabilities, but it requires very dexterous thinking because, um, it, you know, it's asking you to do a lot more than uh, than you might have done in the past. 
Yes, and I think that that uh, comment is a nice, a nice wrap up to this discussion um, because um, I think that uh, going forward, um, the changes that you have documented in the advisor universe in the United States um, are going to demand the, uh, quite a bit of agility in constructing a distribution strategy, a successful one that will really um, uh, ensure strong partnership with the uh, with the with the advisors on the industry front lines. Um, you know, I think that's always uh, top of mind that um, uh, for all asset managers and other product providers. Um, we will have another uh, podcast focusing on the on the variable annuities and life insurance side of the business, and it's not that different. Um, the reality is that uh, advisors um, on the front lines are the key conduit, but the shelf that they have in front of them in terms of product solutions is very, very uh, deep and very crowded. So to stand out, um, you need some uh, solid uh, and agile thinking. And uh, also, as you pointed out, uh, a lot of uh, really good data and understanding how the behavioral and, and kind of preferential um, attitudes are changing. So thank you very much for help us uh, helping us glean these important changes and uncover potential opportunities for strengthening um, advisor relationships and uh, improving engagement uh, with advisors. Well, my pleasure. Thank you very much, Christopher. And that is a wrap for us this month. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date with our monthly or even sometimes twice monthly episodes featuring discussions with thought leaders from the global retail financial services industry. As well, free Feel free to ping us with ideas about specific topics or specific industry guests that you would like for us to um, invite and feature. Thank you very much.